Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. We continue to see the rise in digital commerce based on customer adoption of innovations like digital wallets, buy now, pay later, instant payments, instant issuance of cards, and cryptocurrency. It is expected the payments industry is primed for even more innovation in the years to come. The bottom line is investment in payments technology is needed more than ever to enable financial institutions to be more agile and future ready, delivering faster speed and scale of innovation and greater revenue. My guest on the Banking Transform podcast today is Dan Hanks, Vice President and Head of Product Development for Lending at I2C. He'll be discussing the evolving opportunities and challenges available in today's payments ecosystem. More than ever, financial institutions, fintech players, and even big tech and non-banking organizations need a deep range of payment product solutions that can support cards, mobile payments, as well as traditional lending services and buy now, pay later. These solutions require access to every major network partner, as well as value-added services such as fraud prevention, contact center support, dispute management, and even white-label web and mobile apps. You know, more importantly, these solutions must be highly configurable to enable customization at speed and scale of change today. So welcome to the show, Dan. You know, it's always interesting for me to do research before my podcast to see the background of my guests. Much like me, your background really includes a long history of working at several traditional banking organizations before joining I2C. You know, what prompted you to jump to the other side of the desk, as I say, from working within a financial institution to actually supporting financial institutions with the products you provide? Yeah, thanks, Jim. Yeah, I spent most of the last, say, 15 years or so managing all or parts of credit card businesses for different banks in the U.S. and Europe. One thing I always liked was the growth part. <clears throat> you know, I, I like building stuff, I guess you could say. Uh, and, and that's really what attracted me to I2C. So I2C is a next-generation issuer processor, uh, considered a modern issuer processor, than considered different than some of the old legacy ones that are on the older tech stacks and the like. And one difference we have with our other modern competitors is that we have credit built in as a core to our platform on our single tech stack. And so it's an advantage for us. And one of the reasons that I came here was to keep building that up, building out that advantage. So, I mean, it, you know, we're seeing credit growing uh, considerably among fintechs. Uh, we see a number of smaller banks looking to self-issue, maybe who are in agent bank relationships. And, you know, my, my job here is to keep building out that functionality, building out those capabilities and, and keep expanding on it. So that's what attracted me here. And I've been here about a year and a half now. You know, it's interesting. There's probably no area of financial services that has seen more transformation since the pandemic than payments. You know, what have been some of the most dramatic changes that you've seen in the past years from the consumer perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think the two biggest changes is something we internally call the D suite, the digital suite. And this is really where the pandemic, I don't know if it changed things so much as it accelerated things that were already slowly happening. So one of them is, just the idea of mobile banking, digital banking, and the like. So before the pandemic, certainly many people liked it and were using it, but there were others who were still in that more traditional go-to-the-branch model, right? It's just the way they'd always done it. And maybe that, you know, base might have skewed a little bit older or something, or just people who weren't as comfortable with technology to do it. Well, then the pandemic came and the branches were all closed. So suddenly you had to be able to do it this way. 
And what customers found was that, you know, it wasn't that hard. Now, there are differences in banks, and this is something banks have been challenged with. You know, some banks did that much better than others in terms of how they support that. But customers found that, yeah, they can do mobile, they can do digital, it works well. And even when the branch is reopened, you see a lot of customers still preferring to do it that way and therefore looking at to make sure their bank has all the functionality that they need to be able to do it. So I think that's something that definitely accelerated considerably. The other one on the digital side was just how customers are making payments. I guess uh, the idea of mobile wallets, the idea of using your Apple Watch, things like that to make purchases. Certainly people didn't, didn't want to be handing over physical cards, have somebody touching it, giving it back to them, right? And so that's another thing that accelerated. And right? it was always out there. It was more of a niche of people doing it. And it's still not a majority of transactions of the like. So I don't want to claim that, but it's definitely accelerating. So it's interesting in my situation, you know, I've gotten to the point where my wallet is in my glove box in my yeah. car. And I, I search out those places where I can go and not take anything but my phone. Number one, I do it for security purposes. I certainly yeah. do it for ease. And it's interesting because some of the late, arrivals on the retail side or on the other side of the transaction, namely restaurants, it's much any place else. It's amazing how quickly they've embraced mobile payments at the table. You know, sometimes it's a QR code, sometimes it's a device that they hold. You know, we were really laggards in the U.S. compared to other countries that, that that's been the way of doing things for years. But, you know, it's interesting, more than just the changes in the consumer payments behavior, we're seeing massive changes going on behind the scenes at financial institutions as they try to modernize their back office for the future of payments. Can you share some of the major initiatives the leaders are doing in, in, this, in this area? Sure. You know, I think every single large bank in the country has some sort of digital transformation project going on. Some of them call it that, some of them put a different name, but it's all sort of the same thing. And it all started at the same place. Right. They look at their, they're in an old tech stack, old legacy processors, mainframe style systems of what they're doing internally and the like. And they know, you know, this isn't how you're going to succeed in the 21st century, right? We need to upgrade. We need to have better functionality. And I think the other piece for the banks is we need to be faster. You know, it can't take yeah. 18 to 24 months to launch something new when competitors are launching it in six months, or maybe a fintech is launching it in three months, right? And that's, and that's really a piece that, you know, I think we, we, you know, we work with a lot of large banks as well who are looking into this space to say, you know, we need to do something different here to get faster more than anything else and to have the functionality. I mean, on the digital side, just talking about mobile payments, one thing we see very popular, something we support is a virtual card. So like as soon as a customer is approved for a credit card, you can immediately send them their card number and they can use it online but then we can push provision it instantly into an Apple wallet, a Google wallet, Samsung, Fitbit, and so forth. So literally a minute after you get approved, you could be out at the store with your Apple watch making a purchase. And, you know, there was a time those kind of things were just nice to have, niche things, edge cases. They're becoming more like table stakes, you know, because if you see your friends having them and the other banks have them, well, why don't you have them? And especially for like mid-sized banks, regional banks are smaller. This is really a challenge. Because like the bigger banks need to get faster, but they have the budgets to build whatever they need. Like Chase can build anything. They have you know, almost unlimited money for IT, right? But if you're a regional bank or like, you know, smaller bank, you don't really have that. And that's one of the challenges. Like, you know, why can't I, my customers are saying, why don't I have the ability to do this and do that? And that's one of the things that, you know, is really 
pushing them to figure out what they need to do differently in a tech sense. You know, it's interesting because you, you talk about this ability to actually speed and scale. We talk about that a lot in this podcast. And most institutions, Chase included, have realized that working with third-party providers who focus on the ability to build platforms and build technology that is really adjustable at speed and scale where you can actually innovate as quickly as you can is a major, major difference in the marketplace. You know, I, I, I mentioned a recent podcast that when I was in uh, around the beginning of 2020, I was at Shenzhen China and went to WeBank. And I realized they said they were doing innovation at scale and at speed, whereby they can move from ideation to implementation in 14 days. Well, Legacy tech stacks, you yeah. just couldn't do that. And in fact, most financial institutions still look at innovation and new introductions on an annual basis. And one of the things I go out there a lot and talk about is, guys, this is not acceptable anymore. In yeah. fact, even a month is not acceptable and, and we need to change that. Well, the best way to change that is to find outside third-party providers that can provide that capability and the compartmentalized nature of it where if you only want to change part of that, product line, you can change it. And, you know, so as we're looking at the economy slowing, how is that affecting what issuers are looking for? Yeah, I mean, and that's a, a big change of what we're seeing just in the last few months because of what's happening with the economy. You know, you go back a year ago and everyone was in growth mode, whether it's banks looking to regrow revolving balances, whether it's fintechs just adding customers and not even worrying about profitability because all that private equity and VC money was, was covering all the losses. It was all growth mode, right? Now you're seeing that shift back to risk management. And I think one of the big things you're looking for is, and, and it's not that risk has gotten bad yet. I mean, delinquencies, charge of starting to tick up, but still at much lower levels than you saw a few years ago, even pre-pandemic. But, you know, the storm clouds are on the horizon, right? Everybody can see what's coming probably into next year. One of the things we're really seeing a lot of focus on is around risk management and collections management. And that's something that's also changing <clears throat> with digital world. You know, the old way was you just do brute force calling, call centers, dialer strategies, just flood them with calls until you get somebody on the phone and, you know, if they're delinquent, try to get them to pay their bill. And increasingly, that just doesn't work anymore. You know, one of the key metrics there is called right party contact rate. And it's just what percentage of the customers did you try to get, did you actually get on the phone? And that number just keeps going down year over year. And it's because of cell phones. Right. You know, if, if you see you can see who's calling you, if first of all, if you see it's a collector, you're not going to probably pick up. <clears throat> but all, even if it's an unknown number, you're probably less likely to pick up. Let it go to voicemail. <clears throat> there are also some regulatory limits about doing dialer strategies out to cell phones for collection calls. It makes it less efficient. What we're seeing <clears throat> across the industry now is a much greater focus <clears throat> on other communication channels. So and this is something we support on our platform with our, our communication tools. But it's things like SMS, email, push notifications yep. on your phone. We even tied into our IVR. So if you're using our call center services, when you call up, you can get a message. And it, it's trying to connect to ways that you can actually connect to people. And it isn't necessarily just a message of pay your bill. It could be something like, hey, we know you're having some issues. Please contact us. We can work through this with you. Right? So let the customer call you, and then maybe you have some tools. Like one thing we support are settlement workout plans. You can't pay the debt how it is now. Maybe you can restructure it and put it into a loan and pay it differently. Things like that. But, you know, the key with collections is just somehow to connect to the customer and keep them paying, do something with them so you're getting something back. 
But that's another one where you really need the more modern tools. Because <clears throat> that, that old way of just calling people four times a day, it just it isn't working anymore. You know, it's interesting. You you just came back from Money 2020, and I've been to many events. I wasn't at Money 2020 this year. But another trend that we're seeing in the, because of the down or the transitioning economy, I guess, is that people are cutting back investments. Um, the financial institutions are. They're trying to figure out how do they reallocate funds because they're first and foremost looking at, you know, how do I drive the efficiency? How do I still make a profit? How do I cut costs? And it, it's concerning to me because a lot of areas we don't want to see cut costs. And in fact, it, at most of these events, you have a, an overabundance of sellers and a lack of commitment of buyers. And we're, we're seeing it at every event. And, and that's not because people aren't interested in it. There's just not the investment level. There's not companies investing in events, but more importantly, they're cutting back investments in major technology. And I, I think, you know, when you look at what you're providing more than ever, the ability to transition, to find those third-party players who can keep you at speed and scale despite a down economy, more importantly, keep you in the game during this time period so that when the economy re-energizes, and oh, by the way, payments hasn't changed, you know, you're going to be part of that. So are you seeing this also where where it sometimes may be a little bit harder to convince financial institutions that you need to invest in this now so you don't for, fall even farther behind? You know, I think that ties into your earlier point about like more the overall capital investment of the team versus outsourcing. So I think that's what we're seeing is, you know, internally it can be very difficult for some banks to, you know, especially not the huge banks, maybe mid-sized banks or smaller, to get that large capital investment to be able to do it. But if you outsource, then it becomes maybe more of an operating expense. Right? And if you have a vendor and somebody who can do these services at a reasonable cost for you, that becomes a lot easier over time because you know, you're now matching your expenses to your revenue in the future. It, it's not about $10 million or $100 million today hoping that right. you'll get a positive ROI in five years with all the uncertainty that comes with the economy. So that's certainly something we see that you know, other like banks, which might have maybe a few years ago invested themselves, looking to come to us to say, hey, how can we leverage what you've already done? Right? You've already done this investment. How can we leverage right. this with you? And then that's more efficient for us going forward. You know, another benefit you have too is that you don't have to buy the entire core back back office yep. at the same time. The you know your your organization is a great example where you can compartmentalize, compartmentalize the solutions you're trying to answer to, which really works well on on the client's behalf, but also works well from your standpoint because you learn how to integrate with the other platforms they have. And this is a big change we've seen in the last several years where the ability to innovate at at in certain areas faster than others and actually deploy it is really important. You know, you know, when we're, you know, you talk about the innovation side, I was at a, a an event, uh, uh, geez, about three weeks ago and, and the event asked the players and they were the major financial institutions in the U S how many of you are, are working towards thinking about instant payments and, and rapid payments and things of this nature. And it was interesting because everybody was interested in it. But I was amazed how few really were doing anything toward that. And the overall attitude was, well, we want to see if this answers a problem. We want to see how other people innovate. We want to see where it gets deployed and then we'll, we'll do it. Is this a real concern where organizations still have the legacy mindset of being a fast follower as opposed to being a cutting edge, maybe having a transformation and challenger mindset? No, I, I think it is. And, you know, it tends to be a culture at larger banks to be more conservative. Uh, 
you know, that's where, and it's, you, you mentioned Chase, because they're doing something similar, and watching what the fintechs do, and then jumping on it, and maybe in Chase's case, maybe actually buying them or investing into them, because they're large enough to do that. But there's, it seems like more of the innovation right now is really happening on the fintech side. And that can yeah. be product features, that can be even just segments you're looking at. I mean, we work with a number of fintechs who are looking, who are really focusing more on younger customers, you know, thin file, like less extensive credit histories, things like that, which the banks being more conservative sometimes overlook. And there are reasons. I mean, it, it's more difficult to underwrite people without a long history, you know, but there's opportunity there. And if you get those customers young, maybe you keep them as a loyal customer going forward, right? So there's a lot of innovation going on there in the, the more, more in the fintech space, I would say right now than the bank space. It'll be interesting to see to, to what degree, you know, how fast can the fast followers be, right? You know, if they start losing yeah, customers like point. that. And it's a long-term issue, to be honest. You know, those younger, from a bank point of view, like those very young customers aren't really going to be very profitable, right? They're probably not going to take out mortgages, not going to improve for large car loans. They don't have homes, so they don't have HELOCs and so forth. But, you know, that 22-year-old is eventually going to be a 32-year-old who is your very profitable customer as a bank who's doing all of those things. So I think yeah. the question for banks are, you know, if you lose them as a 22-year-old, can you get them back as a 28-year-old? Or does that fintech just become a bank? You know, that becomes a neobank, which becomes, and they start doing all of their services, and, you know, you just lose them and don't get them back. I, you know, I think that that's something that Chase and Jamie Dimon spoken about a lot. Like, that's where he sees a lot of yep. the risk in terms of fintechs, probably not today, but where it's going. You know, some of the other banks are probably have more of a short-term focus and are not looking on, at that as much. You know, it's interesting. We talk about Jamie Dimon a lot. You know, he got he got slapped in the wrist and the investor public didn't really appreciate the fact that he said he was going to double down on R&D. Yeah. And he said, you know, I have to because I, I'm I'm having my lunch handed to me by a lot of players that most financial institutions aren't even keeping track of. You know, I we talk about it quite a bit on the podcast where, you know, it's not like organizations are losing customers. And they're not losing accounts, I shouldn't say. But what's happening is these customers are diversifying their their players who they're working with and and you know you mentioned it and it and it's the difference between small and big players but also the difference between traditional and what i call non-traditional and that can be either fintechs it could also be the big techs it can be retailers you know are there any other differences you're seeing between you know and i always say the ones you want to look out for are the very big organizations and they're really small they're doing really good things it's that big middle market, what I'll call the, the number 10 to number 150 financial institution that really is stuck in, in the past in many cases. Yeah, and that's been a challenge because it's much harder for them to do the technology investment <clears throat> to keep up. <clears throat> you know, if you're that number 50 bank, you probably don't, you know, you can't be putting $100 million into tech investment every year. Right. So I think that's what we're seeing a lot to say. They're definitely looking more to outsourcing because they're the ones who are more likely to fall behind. Like Chase, City. You know, they'll invest, they'll stay where they need. The small yeah. ones are, you know, are, are stuck in the middle where they, it's tough to invest to stay on that cutting edge. The fintechs, what we're seeing, one of the things, big things we're seeing really is the growth of credit. And it's because of a drive for profitability, right? Again, when you're in growth mode, get a lot of customers and it was a lot of prepaid and debit cards, but, and, but they were very successful in getting a large number of customers. I mean, millions, even 10 million customers, some of these fintechs. But it's not very profitable if you're just making your money off debit card interchange. Right. Now they're starting to look to say, okay, not just we, but our investors are saying, show us your path to profitability. And that path is often to credit, 
which is how banks do it as well, right? There's, there's nothing revolutionary about that. But we're definitely seeing more uh, of those customers getting into credit, looking to get into credit, which will also be some pressure on the banks, right? Because those customers, who are they going to be stealing from? It's people who have bank cards today. You know, you, we, we've talked about innovation a little bit here and, and pivoting a little bit away from cards and traditional credit. You know, we've seen buy now, pay later getting a lot of attention lately, both on the good and bad side. How is I2C supporting these digital solutions? Yeah, this is a definitely another big area of growth we're seeing. And we support end-to-end on BNPL. And there are really like three flavors of it. One is pre-purchase. Like for a debit card customer, you can give them like a loan-type offer. Use this card and it'll have a loan tied to it. We're seeing some of that. Post-purchase is what you see some, we support from some of the bigger banks like Amex and Chase as well. Once you've made your credit card purchases, you can move them into types of installment loans, right? Move it into pay in 12, pay in six, things like that, uh, which again, we support and we're definitely seeing a lot of interest in more of an ancillary product to your existing credit card. The other one is, is pay at point of sale with BNPL. And the networks are actually doing some interesting stuff here. Both MasterCard and Visa are rolling out the functionality to do this. And if you have a processor who's integrated, like we are, if, if you go to make an online purchase with someone they've signed up, when you put your card number in, you go to the checkout page, it'll give you a BNPL offer right there. It feeds right back into right. us. And if the customer chooses it, we can do it. So I think that's going to be an interesting one going forward. It's still in an early stage. Visa's more as rolled it out in Canada and in the U.S. is going to be coming. But I think that's sort of at point of sale BNPL is going to be very interesting because with the networks doing it, and if you have a processor that supports it, even smaller banks can do it, right? The small banks don't have to sign up merchant partners. They don't even have to worry about how the mechanism works. It just, it's all behind the curtain. It all just works you know, behind the scenes on the processor side. So I think that's another one where definitely going to see more, more use of it and more usage of it. You know, it, again, it shows a great example of the integrated solutions that really make it, in many cases, easier to use credit, but also more responsibly looking at how you're making your payments. I mean, I'm not going to have to worry about a high rate loan product from a retailer anymore. I can still put it on my card and integrate it through payments over time, which is a pretty big deal. You know, when you're buying a TV or you're buying something more valuable and, and obviously the government's getting very involved in this. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in the regulatory side because of people using it for everyday purchases. I, I don't really want to buy over time with my, my groceries. You know, it's, it's not a good idea. So, you know, talking about not good ideas and things that are going wrong in this space, you know, the fight against fraud and financial crime continues to grow in scale and importance as the fraudsters get better at what they're doing. How is the industry and providers like I2C working to stay ahead of this problem? And, and that only obviously seems to be getting worse. Yeah. And, and there are really two parts, one sort of from the bank side, one from the more the issuer side, <clears throat> from the customer side. You know, from, from the bank side, the issuer side, you know, application fraud is increasingly an issue, right? You know, as you get more sophisticated blocking fraudulent transactions, the fraudsters start looking at things like synthetic ID, stolen ID, things like that to do it. So you really need application fraud tools, you know, stronger KYC, know your customer type checks up front to make sure you're not letting the wrong people in, right? And because if that happens, there's not a lot you can do about it until it's lost. So I think that's, that's sort of the front end piece of it. On the transaction fraud, you know, it's remarkable how sophisticated the fraudsters are. You know, if there is one chink in the armor, they will find it. 
and, and you know, I've been on the bank side. I've seen so you know, I've seen so many examples of that where these the weirdest of edge cases, you would never even it would never even occur to you that there could be fraud here, and they found it. And we found some around pandemic fraud with that and things like that. Uh, you know, it, it's like at ITC we provide full fraud support. We even provide something we call premium fraud, where for issuers we will actually take the fraud risk. So we'll charge them certain basis points of spend, and then that's on us to do well. And then because we have a large fraud team here that for all of our clients just analyzes all the data, runs the models, machine learning, all, all the cutting-edge stuff to try to stay ahead of it. But, you know, there's, there's no magic bullet. You, it, you have to keep staying. You have to have a, a good fraud team or working with somebody who can manage this. And you just have to stay on it day after day after day because next week they'll have found something else that you're going to have to now shut down, you know, that, that one flaw that you're going to have to fix, which no one knew existed. And it, it, it just never ends. I mean, it, there's, no, there's never a point where you say, this is it, it's fixed. Now, the important thing, too, from the bank side is, you know, good customer experience, good customer service. If there is fraud, you handle it well, you handle it smoothly. That's so you at least make it as smooth as, and painless as possible for the customer. But that doesn't mean there's not pain for the bank. You know, research found that 52% of financial institutions perceive their future operating models as basically being a full-service banking organization. What's interesting is that 32% said that they're tending to be more of a banking-as-a-service model, and, you know, almost every organization is talking about embedded banking. How do you see this playing out, and how does this change the way or impact the solutions you're providing at I2C? Yeah, you know, our platform, we, we work with a number of banking as a service providers in the U.S. and elsewhere who actually leverage our platform to, to provide, especially credit, fast services. Uh, it's definitely a growing area because you have a number of smaller fintechs or other types of companies like that who are, you know, who don't have the experience and don't have the team to basically build up an entire credit card organization. So, you know, our platform is pretty efficient for them to do it, but then they partner with the best providers to be able to do that. So I think it's definitely a way, and I think you talk about embedded finance, this is definitely something we're going to see more there, where it's not always traditional fintechs, traditional banks, right. and so forth, who are doing this. You know, if, if you're a retailer, if you're someone like that who wants to get into the space, not just as a co-brand deal, but as part of your business, I think the best players are, are a strong way to do that because you leverage that expertise. And then you can provide what you do, they provide what they do, and then, you know, we're the platform behind it that runs it. So we're seeing a lot of growth in that area. I mean, the other area we're seeing growth is agent banking. <clears throat> you know, there are, uh, a lot of smaller banks have agent bank relationships, and they're not really happy with them. They don't get great products. Maybe the economics aren't great. Looking to self-issue. So that's another one where, like with our platform, it's pretty easy for a smaller bank to be able to self-issue. And we're definitely seeing more, and it's similar to that of like the smaller players trying to get more into the mainstream rather than just sitting out on the side. So whether it's very small banks, whether it's retailers, embedded finance, I think we're seeing a lot of that. We're, we're seeing it growing, and I think that's just going to increase. You know, it's interesting because you, you keep on bringing back to the smaller financial institutions. And this is one of the major benefits of, of third-party providers is that the ability to buy what you need quickly and have it deployed at speed and scale. And I'll, I'll, I'll make a, another warning out to my listeners because it happens too often is that you need to kind of go along with the providers and take what they're selling to get the advantages they're providing too often. We put stipulations on the providers that say, 
yeah, we want everything you have, but we can't do this and we can't do that. We have to rethink our legacy processes and what we've done in the past to be able to get the full benefit, no matter how big you are, of the organizations that can come to the table and bring you really strong solutions, be it I2C or any of the other third-party providers in any area of banking. I, I, there's a little bit of a commercial there or a warning there, you know, a disclaimer, if nothing else, to my listeners and say, you know, listen to the providers and try to make it so you can actually deploy it the way it was meant to be deployed, as opposed to putting stipulations that only muck it up, um, to say the least. So, you know, switching a little bit and changing gears again, you know, research found that 75% of financial institutions are exploring the relationship between digital currencies and traditional financial payment systems. You know, this has probably changed a little bit as far as the urgency because of the, the crypto markets. But what, does, what do you and your team at I2C believe the future role of cryptocurrencies will be in traditional banking? And when do you think this change will actually occur if it hasn't occurred already? Yeah, no, even with the crypto winter we're in right now, I mean, we're still seeing a lot of interest in that. We support, uh, we're probably the leading processor for uh, crypto players in terms of payments and the likes of crypto.com. We just signed with Abra, with American Express, and there are others where uh, FTX, the new card, is going to actually be powered by I2C and so forth. So, you know, we have a number of providers there, a lot of growth with it, and a lot of desire to figure out how you connect sort of the crypto world to the everyday world. Right. So that's what we see, like with our crypto.com card, you know, you're, you have your crypto.com account, you're earning, you have your whatever cryptocurrencies you have in there, but they want to be able to make purchases at the store. Right. And how you connect to that. And it's usually more like dollar cards, which will then be reloaded. Uh, we're definitely seeing a lot of interest in uh, rewards as well. So mm -hmm. something we support with our rewards platform. So maybe you're earning 1% back, 2% back, whatever it is off your card which is now going into your crypto account automatically to add to whatever crypto coins you're investing in, those sorts of things. So I think that's when we're, you know, I don't know. I think we're still a long way from, you know, using crypto at the store type thing. Like those rails right. really just don't seem to be there. But, um, but, you know, and that's why I think we're seeing increasing interest, especially on the card side with, uh, with our customers of, you know, that connection. I have a crypto account. I need to go spend something at the store. How do I connect those two? And we're seeing a lot of growth that people want to be able to do that. You know, as we wrap it up a little bit here, what do you see as the number one challenge and the one number one opportunity around payments today? Yeah, the, the challenge is really, I think what we've been talking about is the, you know, digital transformation. You know, it, for somebody who's on an older tech stack to figure out how to do that jump without, obviously you can't just tear out and throw out everything you have, right? So, you know, I, I, it, it sounds simple, but, and, you know, the fact that it's taking years for banks to do it isn't really criticism of the banks because it is an extraordinarily complex project. But I think that's the big challenge. They really need to figure out how to really accelerate that digital transformation and leveraging third parties to do it as opposed to necessarily building everything in-house. I mean, I, I think the biggest opportunity is, you know, just what we're seeing from the fintech side. There's, there are customers out there who are, open, who are looking for innovation. Right. You know, it's not if you keep offering the exact same cookie cutter products as everyone else, then, OK, you, if you have a captive base, you have a retail base, you'll sell some of it. Your direct mail will get a certain return rate and so forth. But, you know, there is innovation happening out there, much more so than there was five years or certainly 10 years ago. And that's the opportunity. I mean, it's a risk if you're an incumbent. But if you're not an incumbent and, and maybe you're not a traditional bank, maybe you are a fintech or retail or something like that. 
there's a lot of opportunity to start getting a piece of the revenue that comes out of that payment space. You know, finally, you know, I2C, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't state this and then ask you about it, but I2C was recently named best in class for your credit card as a service offering. What do you think set I2C apart from the competition? There's a lot of impressive names there, but what really sets what you offer apart from other solutions in the marketplace today? Yeah, I think one of the big things is we truly have a single global tech stack. And the advantage we have is that credit is core to it. Like I said, we don't outsource it like some of our competitors do. And the advantage of that single tech stack is, first of all, we are a true global company based in Silicon Valley. But, I mean, we have clients all over the world who are running the exact same version of all of our platform on it. And I think what that means is we can innovate faster. And, you know, when we make a change, it goes everywhere. It's in the single tech stack. Everyone has it immediately. And it's a configurable platform. So, you know, it's not about coding. It's about just configuring what features we have. And that, you know, that combination just gives us a speed and functionality that puts us ahead of the competitors. You know, it's interesting. And congratulations on that honor. And I think, again, we get back to, you know, it's finding the right partner. It's evaluating all the partners. But most importantly, it's actually doing something about it. Um, as financial institutions, I'm, I'm a legacy banker, so I go way back, but it, the mindset really has to change. And organizations, and I say this often in presentations I do and on the road, is that we need to, as organizations, as people, em- embrace changes around us, not fight it. Number two, we have to manage risk and accept risk, risk that are managed as opposed to avoided. And most importantly, we have to disrupt ourselves and our thinking process. You know, the biggest hindrance to transformation is legacy thinking. And those organizations that are moving ahead in the payments field today are doing it quickly and at scale. And, uh, you know, some small organizations are building platforms where they can become very big very quickly in the payment space because of the thought process that they have in place. And I think, you know, as as people that listen to this podcast regularly know that I, I am, I get frustrated at times with the, the change, the speed of change and the lack of it in the financial service industry. But I think more than ever, and especially in the payments area, it is imperative that we look at the innovations that are possible and move forward today more than ever while the economy's having a little bit of a hiccup, at least, and and making sure that you're ready for when everything turns more around. So, Dan, thank you very much for being on the show today. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoy what we're doing on this show, please take some time and give our show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. Finally, be sure to catch the articles I'm writing for the financial brand and the research we're doing for the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Haslidge, audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, the speed of change has never been faster and it'll never be this slow again. We'd never admit it, but deep down, we all get at least some pleasure from bad things happening to somebody we don't like. History's full of stories about bitter enemies being mutually horrible. Usually nothing good comes of it. But sometimes, sometimes... You get soul singers James Brown and Joe Tex, or 17th century nun Sor Juana, and the entire Catholic Church duking it out and dramatically changing our world. 
On Beef with Bridget Todd, we tell the stories of those petty feuds behind some of the greatest art, innovation, and global events. Listen to Beef wherever you get your podcasts.